The following presentation is brought to you by KMmedia.pro. Please visit KMmedia.pro for more information. Now stay right where you are as we present. Welcome to Positive Talk Radio, evolving ideas, one conversation at a time. Great guests, dynamic stories and interviews, plus new thoughts on a wide range of topics and concepts. I hope that you'll hang with me, Kevin McDonald, my friends, and of course, you, as together we work to understand why we are all here and what we can do to make our world a better place for all of us to be happy, be kind, and live in peace together. Yep, that's Positive Talk Radio. Another episode of Positive Talk Radio. We've got a good one for you today. And I'm really excited to have the young lady that's sitting right over there with us today. And uh, she is a certified, and I'm not sure I'm going to say this right, uh, Elkie, so you're going to have to help me here. She's a certified um, um, counselor, um, and we'll discuss what certified means in just a second. Uh, she works with people, and, and and she's a psychotherapist. She's got a master's degree, and she's an author. And we're going to talk about her book, which is called Identity. And we're going to talk about that quite a little bit today. And I want to welcome you to the show. It's 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 you know I feel like you have got an amazing amount of education, and you use your 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 in your spirituality, and you use your uh, uh, intuition to help people live their lives a little bit better. And you're in Vancouver, Canada right now, mm-hmm. which is a beautiful area. And it's, it's, I hope it's as hot as theirs. It is here. It's 90 here and, and we're in Seattle. So, so it's, it's great to have you here and welcome to the show. Elke. Thank you so much, Kevin. So good to see you. Thank you. It's so good to see you too. Um, you have been, well, first of all, in your history, you you grew up in Europe, and That's you right. and you came here to Canada, and you you got your education in Canada, right? That's right. Yeah, Canada, Toronto at U of T. Toronto, what? Toronto at U of T, University of Toronto. Ah, very nice, very mm-hmm. very nice. And you have got a, a master's degree and a bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. And you and uh, you're also um, have another um, uh, classification as far as a counselor goes. Describe yeah. what that is. It's called registered clinical counselor or registered clinical psychotherapist. And what it means is you have to have a minimum of a master's plus about minimum 3000 clinical hours of experience before you can get registered and once you have a registration it's a registration body by bc which is essentially monitored so not everybody you know you have to have these requirements in order to join how long does it take to get three thousand clinical hours (laughs) i i Cannot remember. <laughs> <laughs> a while. Uh, it does, yes. Um, I have been working in this field for about 30 years. 
So I accumulated lots of experience in Toronto already. And by the time I came out to Vancouver, I think I already had a couple of years of experience. So I had the requirement when I came to Vancouver. Well, that's, that's just awesome. And I'm glad, you know, you've got lots of education. Um, mm. And you were born in Bavaria, Germany, right? That's correct. Yes, in a little town in Bavaria, Germany, in the south where everything is groovy and <laughs> it was a small, beautiful town, idyllic looking like some set out of a movie with patrician houses and churches. Oh, that's it. So and it's been it's been around a long time. So it's got the architecture from the Middle Ages and that's right. and, and moving forward and stuff. It's so a medieval town. So there's a medieval tower which was built in 1316 in order to look out and see if there was any danger. Uh, people would be on the tower and alert the, the population that danger is approaching. So you could defend yourself, and that medieval tower still stands. And that would be that would be cool. Is it a tourist attraction now? Definitely, yeah. It's a, it's a town about a hundred kilometers northeast of Munich, and it's one of the jewels of Germany. But it's a bit of a secret. People, you know, don't come to it like Munich, um, even though it has the second biggest Oktoberfest in Germany. It's the Oktoberfest that all the locals go to. The Oktoberfest in Munich is where tourists go. But Straubing, my hometown, has has, one, has millions of people every year in, in August. Well, here's a tip for folks. If you go to a foreign country and you're going there for like an event like um, Oktoberfest, always ask the locals where to go that's true <laughs> because they know because they go to the local place that is the really cool place yeah i used to love that folks fest it's called not Oktoberfest, and it's in august i used to love it as a child i used to go there with my dad mostly my jewish dad ah yes yes and that's that's ultimately what you wrote the book about Mm -hmm. And uh, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute. But before we go there, I got to ask you because I was reading your bio, mm -hmm. and I wanted to. Uh, you you do a lot of family counseling, and yeah. you also do something that you incorporate spirituality appropriately. Could you explain what you mean by that? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I certainly don't have any prescribed spirituality or religion I personally prescribe to you. But I've had some spiritual experiences myself, which surprised me. So those experiences taught me that there's so much more to life than what we can see. And this I integrate into my practice. Of course, if somebody is totally atheist and doesn't believe in it, it's not appropriate and I'm not here to judge. So I'm going to go with whatever the person is capable of hearing. 
that that is absolutely perfect really although although you know i'm have you worked with a lot of atheists because i i don't understand honestly where they're coming from because when you look at you look at the world you look at nature you look at all the things that are available to us mm-hmm. and to to not believe in something greater than yourself is hard for me to comprehend that somebody would because I've known people that said, no, 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 honestly, when you're dead, you're dead. Mm-hmm. It's like, that doesn't seem like a very nice ending to a, a wonderful life for me. Mm-hmm. The thing is, people have the right to their opinion. So I don't personally try to change their minds. Uh, I find it kind of sad that the person thinks that everything is over because I had these experiences that taught me that there is so much more that we can't see. But these people are strictly scientific and they say, you know, science proves to me that this is it. We are some kind of miracle that all the cells aligned and we certainly uh, have a great life, but then that's it. And so I don't try explain that away. I can understand their position, but personally, I feel much better to know the spiritual things that I've experienced. We know what the fun part about that is and how I look at it is I don't judge. I try not to judge either because what they do is perfectly fine. Because they're going to find out at one day, when the one day that they uh, pass away, they're going to find out that they were absolutely dead wrong. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. You know, so it's like, holy crap, I guess there is something else after that. So, you know, um, so they'll figure it out. It doesn't matter between here and there, as long as they don't um, indoctrinate other people into that kind of negativity and stuff, then I have no issue. Right. It's the indoctrination that's really hard to take. And I certainly speak up against it. And I tell people, like, you know, if they indoctrinate, usually it comes from such a rigid position. And usually they get into a lot of hot water in relationships. So I do tend to be kind of challenging because uh, people need to be somewhat uncomfortable to change. And so I don't shy away from making people somewhat uncomfortable to get to that new new learning, that new knowledge. So possibly I've put some doubt into the minds of atheists. Uh, it's quite possible. I I think you probably do. <laughs> they they may not say it to you, but I'm, I'm pretty sure they'll walk away from the conversation and go, well, you know, maybe I need to rethink this. That's true. Yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> I'll bet you have. <laughs> uh, you know, and looking at your website, I see all kinds of uh, really wonderful reviews and uh, um, including the gentleman who wrote, and I, his name escapes me, but the gentleman who wrote Good Things Happen to Good People. Yes. Uh, which is a b- real famous book and it's been yeah. out there for a little while. So, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. He's yeah. an amazing guy. I met him in person and we really connected. And he has been super interested in my work and super supportive. He has done extremely well. He has been. 
traveling uh, throughout the world and has been on Oprah, of course, and all the big places. As you might be soon, because your book just came out a little bit ago. Yeah. Came out in January. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's, it's growing and it's doing well. The name of the book is Identity from Holocaust to Home. And uh, so, and it involves your dad. And uh, does it also involve your grandpa? It does involve my grandpa, who was one of my earliest memories. He's a wonderful, wonderful, was a wonderful man. Unfortunately, he, he passed when I was four years old. But he was a Hitler objector. And, uh, and as the German in 33, uh, the German Nazism was really coming into force. They actually already shut down people who were actively voicing their opinion. And my grandfather was one of those people. So they actually arrested him and put him into Dachau. Dachau was the first concentration camp built in Germany for Germans who objected to Hitler's propaganda. That, 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 you know, <clears throat> and I was thinking about, uh, you, were, you were born at a time, and I talked to my mother quite a little bit about this. She passed away last year. She was 90. Mm-hmm. The events that you have witnessed over time, from the time you were born, including uh, World War II, the Holocaust, all of that, and then moving forward through the 50s and the 60s, and then mm-hmm. the computer age and the mm-hmm. and jet age and all, all of that stuff, you've seen quite a lot, haven't you? Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, so many changes. It's quite bizarre. Are uh, you computer literate? I I am now. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Well, the only reason I say that is because it's hard for those of us that grew up in a house that that had a rotary phone. We didn't even have a uh, um, answering machine uh, back in the day. They hadn't even invented them yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and if and if you if the line was busy, you knew somebody was home. But uh, and that's yeah. the only way that you knew. I grew up on uh, listen. Well, in my teenagehood, I listened to cassettes, and that was my entertainment. And that's how I learned English. I listened to English music. I thought my English was really good because I understood some of the songs I was listening to, but it was on cassette recorder. Who were some of your favorite artists that you were listening to at the time? At the time, I was listening to um, Cat Stevens. Oh, you know, Sad Lisa, and yeah. It's a Wild World. That yep. really encouraged me to go out into the wild world myself and come to Canada. Uh, another song that inspired me was uh, San Francisco. You know, like all these songs about where you could go and, you know, have some adventure. I certainly was ready for some adventure. And that's so that's like in the 60s, um, if, if memory serves me right. And so uh-huh. 60s, early 70s. 60s, early 70s. Yes, 60s, early 70s. That's when I was a teenager. 
Yeah. Oh, so you know, so was I. That's yeah. What, so that, that that works out really quite well. I graduated from high school in 1975. Uh huh. Right. So, so, but you, so what? motivated you now you you're a, a therapist you are a counselor you've got lots of things going in your life what motivated you to write a book about um your dad and, and the holocaust and what he went through i thought he might ask that <laughs> you did <laughs> and honestly there's so many things that motivated me to write that book i don't know where to start with um, probably one of the first things was when I was a child, I knew that there was something terribly wrong. And I knew that I had a mission. I had a mission somehow to tell that story of what was wrong. And fast forward to 50 years later, uh, it had to be told because it was high time. I could not suppress the story any longer. And the thing is, we need to own the sides that we have neglected, that have essentially created holes in our personality because we have not paid attention to them, so we don't own them. And it became increasingly clear to me what I needed to own and it was wonderful to write it. First, I wrote for the German audience. I sent my I had been asked to send my manuscript to a German publisher, and immediately he sent me a message with publish it. Within a day, I had the publisher in Germany. And that was really freeing because I had the publisher so quickly. I knew there was a need, I knew people wanted to know, and I could write to the German audience. I knew exactly what they wanted to know. They wanted to know what was really going on with you in Germany. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'll tell you, you uh, um, it's not very often, I'm, I'm sure you know this, it's hardly never, ever, ever that you send a manuscript or a book off to the first publisher and they read it and say, I'll publish this tomorrow. Yeah. Um, normally, you know, you get lots of rejection letters and, and you got to do a rewrite and you got to, so that's, that's pretty powerful that you were able to get all that done. Yes. It was pretty exciting. It's pretty exciting. And that publisher was amazing. Yeah. Not only did he say, you know, we'll publish it tomorrow. He made it happen within eight months i was published i had to go through a grueling uh editing process and of course everything had to be in german i worked with his editor and his team and then he had an absolutely wonderful book launch and that was at kristallnacht which is the night of broken glass so he planned it so it would be on a an auspicious day. The Night of Broken Glass. What yes. is that about? Um, that was the first um, in Germany. The, it was November 10, the night, uh, into November 11. And it was uh, essentially the first um, 
ruin of the Jewish population because the Germans came around, the Nazis came around bashing in storefronts. That's why it's called broken glass and uh, essentially beating up any Jew who would be in the vicinity and robbing, plundering, and demolishing anything of Jewish worth. That's a, that, is, that is terrible. But, you know, the interesting thing is, is that fast forwarding to today, there are people who need to talk to you and need to read your book because they need to understand that the Holocaust, number one, it actually did happen. Because mm -hmm. uh, there are some people who say it was a figment of somebody's imagination. Um, it, it actually did happen and it affected a lot, a lot of people in a very negative way. And uh, six million Jews were killed, and mm -hmm. and but that wasn't that that wasn't really the entire story, because many 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 more people lost everything. That it was, and that's that's part of the identity or the reason for for mm -hmm. you to write the book and and to bring that history forward so that people understand what actually was happening back then. Absolutely, you know, if we don't tell that story, that story dies with us. And the people's history can be a lot more sketchy uh, than these days, especially in Canada and the States. Uh, in Germany, it's still pretty fresh. People mm -hmm. are very aware. And I now talk about it. When I grew up, it wasn't talked about for 20, 30, 40 years. There wasn't much. People wanted to shut up about it. And now it's totally totally blossomed into yes we we did that but uh it's not like there is any kind of retribution in germany either it's just that it's come more to the forefront and the history is more alive than here now my understanding is that they've taken and correct me if i'm wrong but they've taken it to heart of what mm -hmm. happened then and they are mm -hmm. dedicated to making sure nothing like that ever happens again that they would be involved in. Is that fair? I think for the most part, that's fair. You have to uh, understand, of course, there's people of different ilks and there is people who don't believe that in Germany as well. And the neo-Nazis are also rising in Germany. Oh, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. That yep. is just off. Well, so let's talk about your dad. Mm -hmm. um, and your your dad was a professional man, and mm -hmm. he was an owner of a factory, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. He had a he had a meat factory, which was not at all what he had in mind, and what he wanted to be. He was supposed to be an educated. He was a wealthy, educated Jew from a wealthy, educated family. But he was 15 when everything was torn away from him. And he spent five years, formative years, between 15 and 20, in the concentration camps of wild repute that, that we really know well. And he miraculously, 
and due to his own instinct, survived. But he was robbed of his wealth, his health, his education, his ability to be educated, which was in the books, that was his identity, that was his destiny. His family, two of his brothers were rabbis, and rabbis, you know, are people who are very influential in town. So his family was very influential. And of course, the influential people were segregated in that they were targeted sooner. And the Nazis went in and shot the two rabbis first because they were influential people. They shot the family's three German shepherds, which were guarding the property, which was the first trauma to a 15-year-old. That's enough of a trauma. And then they took the family. My father had six. There were six children. So he had five siblings. He lived, uh, actually, they lived on an apple orchard in the country because it was safer to live there at the time than in town in Poland. And his cousin lived in the house next to him. So the two brothers and their families lived together. And of course, they were all deported. Now, did, and I, I know it's probably in the book, and I, I will, I'm sad to say I haven't read completely yet, but uh, was his uh, sisters and brothers, did any of them pass away during the Holocaust, or did they all make it through too? About 80% of my family on my father's side was killed. Uh, some of them killed right away, like his two brothers. His father tried to escape and he was killed because a Polish farmer took him in. And when uh, the father produced all the gold and all the jewelry, the Polish farmer um, outed him to the Nazis and he was shot right away. And my father's siblings, he never saw again. And his parents, he never saw again. He looked for everybody, couldn't find anybody. But miraculously, and this, this is some of the coincidences that really taught me a lot about you know, synchronicities. He actually located his sister, and he found his youngest sister had survived. And she lived in Montreal, and she had three children of which two of them are psychologists, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Must be in the genes. It must be. (laughs) So he did uh, discover that his sister was alive and that changed pretty much everything in my family because finally somebody on my father's side emerged. But to come back to your question, Since I lost 80% of the family, or at that time, I thought it was 100% because I didn't know anybody on my father's side. So I thought, you know, what, what, 
what are these people like? And I always wondered, you know, about them. And that's probably also one of the reasons why I wrote the book. I needed to give them a voice. I needed to get to know them. And in the book, I accomplished that somewhat. Well, that's, that's, it's remarkable. You know, I don't know that we could talk too much about uh, the Holocaust and what happened there because it can't happen again. And we have to all be convinced and assured that, that it's not going to happen again to folks. And, uh, but I, I thank you for writing the book because in, and in Germany, it was quite a hit, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yes. We had 200 people at the book launch and they had to bring in benches from the outside because I didn't expect that many people, um, people were lining up and it was so well received and well respected. Um, yeah. I can't, yeah, I can't say enough about the German experience. And and I'll tell you, you, you well, you know, in the research that you've done, to go into a, a concentration camp at 15 and to be there for five years and survive mm-hmm. it and then to come out of it, it was very rare. That did not happen a lot. It did not. And my dad wasn't the most physically strong either. He was, um, you know, average height, but I think it was his, his spirit and his intuition that helped him survive. And at the end of the war, just about six weeks before the war ended, he had an inkling that the war was ending because the Germans were shooting people more and they were more uh, intent on getting rid of the evidence and so he was reading that and he decided he wasn't going to go on that last transport and he actually decided to force himself to hide among the dead which he he managed he managed to actually crawl in among the dead and wait till the the concentration camp actually emptied. And when everybody was gone, he crawled out from among the dead and staggered into the fields that surrounded the concentration camp and staggered into a little village. There was some farmer, um, he, he knocked on the farmer's door and the farmer, to his credit, opened the door and took him in. The farmer could have easily been shot if he had, if anybody had seen that. And the farmer nurtured him. And it was about six weeks before the end of the war. And the farm family took him into town, into Straubing. This was around Straubing. And took him into town to the hospital. He must have, did he ever, did he ever recount to you what it was like to be in and amongst the dead for a long period of time like that and what his mind would have gone through? Kevin, you cannot imagine what it was like for him when he told me this. I, I, I was shaking. He was shaking from top to bottom 
like a leaf and he was so upset i i thought he was going to have a heart attack and you know it it was such an earth shattering thing to 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 bring up again to to even remember uh but he shared it with me and i was a teenager at the time and i was truly shaken but after he shared it with me we both buried it again and we both never talked about it again how do you think that because he 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 let it out for you but then he buried it back again how do you think that affected his life overall that all the stuff that he had to because i'm sure in addition to that he saw some really horrific things during that five-year period and to bury that how how does how does a human cope with with that and and still Mm-hmm. maintain some sort of a positivity or some kind of a life I, mm-hmm. that would be hard yes you know he was remarkable in that he sort of picked up you know where he could because he didn't complain that he lost his chance for education he just said, okay, I've got to make money. Of course, there was nobody there to put him through school, which he would have loved. But he had to learn German. He had to make a life. So he relied on what he could do, which was trading. And he started to trade. And he was smart. And he was honest. People trusted him. He, he started to trade in the German uh, black market. And he met people who really started to like him, and uh, he procured goods for them, and they supported him to open a business. And it happened to be a meat business, which at the end of his life, he told me he absolutely hated. (laughs) But he, in the meantime, he made it the best meat business in town. He had a pride in what he was doing. He, it was quality. He was running the business, and that's not a small feat. If you have a factory and have employees, you know, you have to supervise. He was quality control. And my mother ran the front uh, store, which also had several people. We had lots of employees and it was quite a lot of work it was busy all day long so he threw himself both threw themselves into work and nothing else mattered and for that he was highly functional he just couldn't function with certain things he had phobias about trains he couldn't get it into trains or planes because the transports were so traumatic that that significantly hampered his life. He could never come see me. My mom wouldn't leave him alone, so they never came to Canada. He couldn't see his sister. The sister, who vowed never to step foot into Germany, took her family to come to us. 
After 27 years, they were reunited because the sister and her family came to us. So his life was severely hampered because of his uh, phobia. He couldn't go into these kinds of enclosed spaces. But other than that, he was highly functioning. Well, and, and if he had the best meat shop in town, that, that would be, because that's, that's, not only is that hard to do, but managing the employees and keeping, you know, the, the quality up and, and doing all that and keeping the service up, that's quite a feat. And I'm sure that he was proud of himself and that you were proud of him for the, the accomplishments that he made after the war as well. I think so. I think he was proud of, you know, having created uh, a successful business. We, we never had to suffer. You know, they had to start from zero. So he was quite successful. I believe that made him feel very competent and happy. I wasn't particularly proud of him as a teenager. I was fairly belligerent. So I can't say I was too proud at that time. Now ah, I, you're, you're a teenager. That's what that's that's kind of in the job description. That's what teenagers do. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and you as a parent, your your children know that you don't know anything, and then suddenly when they're about thirty, you get a lot smarter. So that's true. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I did. I did appreciate them a lot after you know I was in Canada for a while. But, you know, being belligerent as a teenager was really helpful because I came to Canada on my own with two suitcases, and that was not an easy feat. And if I hadn't been, you know, plucky and told him, no, I'm not taking the business, I would not have landed in Canada by myself. Now, that also takes a great deal of courage. To, to leave not only your continent, and but to go to a whole brand new place that speaks a completely different language and to move into in and then to make it work for yourself and to get the education you have. You've got the, the uh, bachelor's and the master's and you've, you've done you've done so well. You must you should be proud of yourself as well. Thank you. <laughs> now, I do have to say I wanted to ask you the, the name of the book is called Identity. Mm -hmm. From Holocaust to Home, what does identity mean to you And in, as far as the book goes? Mm -hmm. Identity I chose because really my dad had to reinvent himself completely. He lost everything. He, he called himself naked and not because he was naked. He had his pajamas, the threadbare pajamas, but... He had nothing, no pictures, no identity, because everything he believed in, his family, his religion, everything essentially was stripped from him. That is that that explains the name perfectly because his everything everything that he was, everything that he knew, everybody that he loved, they were all yeah. gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there isn't one picture, there's one item of sentimental value. Um, his education was gone, so everything he thought he would be, his identity was robbed. Yeah, what did he want to be? Had, had he continued his education, do you know what he wanted to be? He 
was a really good singer. Oh. And, yeah. And one of the options would have been for him to be a cantor or a rabbi. Um, but he didn't want to do that. He wasn't ultra religious. So for him, probably doctor or lawyer, something of a, you know, cerebral kind of nature, which he was. He was a very thoughtful, intelligent man. And he became essentially a butcher. Uh, Well, he didn't actually do the butchering. He hired a master butcher. So he was the he was the boss. They called him chef, which is boss. So he was the boss and he would tell, you know, what was good, what was bad. Like he he did a lot of work uh, in uh, procuring all the all the supplies. He he was trading. He was he was making sure everything was available for the people who did the actual butchering. But he was back in the factory as well. Uh, con- you know, doing the uh, control, quality control, making sure things were cured properly, there was enough salt or enough pepper, and he was really good at it because the meats like were spectacular. And those were the days when that he was procuring things. I'm sure some of it on the black market. And mm-hmm. it's, it amazes me that it, it, throughout all of that, he had to end up when he was released and he he ended up having to turn to the black market to make a living because he couldn't make it any other way. No, uh, exactly. The black market was thriving and he he found, you know, people trusted him and he did honest business. So I I think that was really good for him. Well, and if you if you recall, the in the other interesting thing about that period of time is in in nineteen forty five, which is mm-hmm. when he was released, when mm-hmm. the Allies came and 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 mm-hmm. liberated the, the camps. In nineteen forty five, there wasn't much left of Germany. It had been basically uh, uh, bombed to the ground. Yes. Um, and so th- nobody had anything at the, at that point and, and they Absolutely. were yeah and everybody nobody. was trying to survive yeah so yeah the, so the the black market was really the only way to to procure things at the time for probably 2 3 years yep the germans as well you know he worked with a lot of germans and that uh, is part of the reason why he stayed in germany a lot of Jewish people cannot understand why he did that. But he had a lot of Germans who actually were very good people, and he differentiated between good and bad people, not between races. So he had friends amongst German people, and he had friends amongst Jewish people. But it was the people with integrity he chose. He was really discerning. And the German people that he chose to to actually hang out with were amazing to him. Helped him to find a place, helped him to establish himself in the black market. And these were the people he procured things for, mostly the Germans. That's a, that's a, that is amazing. By the way, I wanted to ask you, because he did so much, and then he became a successful businessman, and... Um... 
and lived. How long did he live? He, you see, that that's tricky to say. He, he actually made himself older. That's part of his instinct. When he he was coming into a concentration camp, he stood on a stone and proclaimed he was eighteen, and he was only fifteen. So we don't know exactly when he was born. Oh. He said he said twenty two. But when I met his sister, she said 25. She said he wasn't that old. So uh, he probably was somewhere between 80 and 84 years old when he passed. At the end of the day, um, was he, he'd done a lot and he'd recovered and he, he had you and, he, mm-hmm. and, and he'd, he'd had some wonderful things. Did he feel like his, he'd recovered from all of that by the end of his life? And then was he proud of himself? Yes, he was. He was, um, he was content. He felt really proud of me, even though initially it was devastating for him that I left and he didn't see a future in me being a psychologist. He thought it would be much easier if I took a thriving business, of course. But in the end, I think he felt totally proud of me. And he felt very content with having made a life. He was surrounded by people who loved him. He was very loved. And you know that the German people loved him actually is quite an accomplishment. There is a triumph in overcoming those kinds of, you know, tremendous prejudice feelings and actually having people that initially have, had done harm to him, actually learned to love him. It wasn't those people who did the harm to him. But, you know, if we're talking about Germans. It's, it's amazing that he was enlightened enough to be able to make that distinction mm-hmm. between people rather than just lump them all German, bad, German, yeah. awful, uh, and, and I hate them. Because yeah. there were good people that helped him along the way. I think so. And to me, that was sort of second nature. Like, that's what he taught. And I thought everybody thinks that way. But it's clearly not. And, you know, the world would be a much better place if people thought that way. And they were discerning between people instead of races. And really understood what makes good people. And people themselves take responsibility for what makes them good. And bad because we both we always have both in us good and evil and we can choose good or evil sometimes um for some people it seems to be easier to choose evil than it is to choose good i choose to do good and uh, that's why i'm excited about this conversation that we've been having you you're you are dynamic i gotta tell you and and uh uh, being an author and honoring your dad the way that you have with the book um the name of the book again is identity from holocaust to home and uh it is a complete story of a man's life that went from um death's door to literally sleeping with the dead for a while and then waking up and being able to 
live his life and to and to provide for his family and and to have lots of friends and it's it's you know it's a remarkable story the story of your dad thank you and i applaud you for writing it how long did it take you to write it and and did you put everything that is everything in that book or did you leave a few things out i left a few things out <laughs> <laughs> i kind of figured so but that's that's probably a good thing yeah i think so i started writing this book in 2016 for for real and then uh, i had this uh, request from the german editor so i took a hi hiatus from the english version and i went to germany and published in germany at 2017 so that only took me a year because the publisher was so speedy and then um 2018 i started to translate and get it uh into pro progress to do the English version, bring it to the North American market. And that took a lot longer. But I had it published in January 29, uh, 21. So, yes, and so that that is, uh, and it's been doing well, from what yeah. I understand. Yeah. And it is, it's, 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 is it, would you kind of, call it an historical novel or would you call it a uh, biopic what would you call it it's called uh, historical nonfiction. Ah. it's written like a novel uh, but it is nonfiction. it is the truth it's my story and so that you don't have liberty to just say whatever when it's uh, classified as historical nonfiction. But well, but, it, it, yeah, it has it has actually gotten some awards for for from different uh, in the states and in Canada for historical nonfiction. So that's exciting. Yeah, it is. It uh, it's it's a. I'm going to go get that book and I'm going to read it because I am interested in in history as as well and. Um, it's it's just remarkable that he could go through what he did and then come out the other side and 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 it worked out and I'm glad you wrote the book. It's it's an important it's an important piece and it's part of our history that sh we should never forget. Yes, it's very important to remember and learn from the mistakes that uh, history has committed. This was an atrocity what happened to my dad and i did actually simply not talk about it like how how, how can you right but right. i wanted to write a book not about the holocaust and about the atrocities because i learned that there you know for me life is about learning and i think it's all about going forward and we are all victimized to some extent but if we learn how to go forward so my dad learned to not complain and stick with the victim mentality he was he never was like that he he became a victor in itself in that he took control of his life to the best of his ability even though he had ample opportunity to 
to complain. And he decided not to because it wouldn't do any good anyway. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's it's a it's a great it's it's a great book and I'm I'm glad you wrote it. And I'm glad you're you're the other thing that's I think is really, 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 really cool is that you have taken your life and you have made it something special and you're helping people every day live their lives just a little bit better. And that's that's really cool for you to be able to do that. It's true. I do get a lot of uh, enjoyment out of that, helping people to change their lives for the better. There's nothing better than actually going home and feel like you've accomplished something like that. I'm very fortunate that way. Well, not only are you, well, I don't know that fortunate is the right word that I'd use. I, th- I think that you're driven. You've made a decision that this is what you're going to do. And you then went out and decided to go ahead and do it. And you didn't take no for an answer. Yeah, it definitely t- it took a lot of sticking with it, a lot of determination and perseverance to get to where I had to get to. Because coming to Canada was um, is quite sketchy. I had, you know, very little English. I had no um, student visa. I had a visitor's visa. I had $3,000 to my name. And my parents were hoping I would come back very quickly that way. But it didn't happen. No, because you, you have what I call authentic grit. <laughs> which means that you really were not going, you didn't take no for an answer. You are going to follow your heart, follow your passion, do what you wanted to, what you felt was in your heart to do, and then you weren't going to take no for an answer. So you just kept on going, and you persevered through, you know, through all of it. And I can't think of any situation that could be as dire as going to a brand new company with limited funds and not know the language and not have a work visa and not doing it and then be able to turn all that around and become a highly educated, highly successful woman who is an author of a great book. You, you must be proud of yourself as well. Well, I, I tend to be more humble on the humble side, it's kind of hard for me. That's probably part of my trauma. And I find a hard time to uh, to sort of take a break, you know? There's always, mm, yeah, you're quite right about being driven. There's always something I need to do. And I think when you asked me earlier, why did you write the book? There is a mission, like I do want to, make a difference in the world. I want to change the world for the better. So I can't rest on, you know, too too long because uh, there is a lot to do. There is a, there, (laughs) I don't know if you've noticed, but there today seems to be a lot more to do than there was yesterday. uh, Because we seem to be going backwards in some manner or form. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's serious. We need to put our thinking cap on and make sure we make a difference. Absolutely. So what I'd like to do now, but before we go, um, and by the way, Elke is the author of the book, Identity from Holocaust to Home. Go get it. It's on Amazon. It's everywhere. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great book. It's a great story of perseverance 
and uh, resiliency and somebody who wasn't going to quit. And that's her dad. He passed it on to her. And they both are, both of you are what I would call authentically grateful people because you, you have really uh, kept going and doing what you needed to do. So, but I'm going to, I want to step aside for the next couple of moments. And I'd like you to tell our audience, and there are actually quite a few people listening today. Um, I would like you to tell our audience anything you would like them to know about anything. And uh, I will step aside and please, the floor is yours. Yeah. Well, that's a big surprise. I'm talking to my audience. That is wonderful. I don't know who is out there, but I'm sure grateful that you are actually present with me at this time. And the first thing that comes to mind is that at 13 years old, I spoke about Eichmann to my class. Um, 13 year old, I would have been grade seven. And that was in front of a nun who took quite offense to me speaking about Eichmann. At the time, these kinds of things weren't talked about. And maybe it's difficult for people to listen to those kinds of things now as well. So I truly appreciate you guys hanging with me and being interested in history and making sure that these kinds of things aren't repeated and making sure that we have a voice, that these stories of trauma do not get suppressed. We want to be able to express them without reliving them, and we want to be able to learn from them. So I want to send a heartfelt thank you to all of you who are present right now. And I want to thank you for, for coming here and doing the show. I feel I've been uplifted by your courage, by your steadfastness, and your work ethic and and also your dad's and i know that when he when he passed away he was unbelievably proud of you and of himself for for what he went through and he came out the other side and uh and he did better than most could have done so so congratulations and and um thank you for writing the book it's an important book it needs to be read. It needs to be in libraries in this country, even though some people are trying to take books off the shelves in the libraries. It needs to be out there so that people can understand what happened and that the Holocaust was real and had real impact on a lot of people's lives. And, it, you know, for his entire family to be wiped out by the Holocaust is, in, in today's, we don't, we can't even imagine what they went through. No, we can't. And for people to assert that kind of nonsense is infuriating. Uh, that's an understatement because it certainly is real. He, he lived it. He, his life, his identity was destroyed. And like I said, we need to give voice to those kinds of stories that cannot be repeated. It, it cannot happen. 
that people take liberties like that. Well, and the important part is what you did is by writing the book is you gave him a voice for something that uh, for for something that he. <laughs> Holly Berry just said she's, uh, I'm buying you a cup of coffee on your website. Deep interview. Thank you. Uh, so uh, that's, that's funny. Um, but I just wanted to, I just want to say that, uh, um, rather than see what would have happened had you not written the book is your dad would have lived his life. He would have passed away. And over time, what he went through would have been forgotten. And now it is memorialized for all of time so that people can pick up the book. And there's going to be people who are going to pick up the book. It may be a, a secondhand store. It may be uh, in the library, wherever they find it. And it's going to touch them. And um, his life goes on now because it is going to touch other, other people's lives. And hopefully they won't make the same they will help humanity not make the same decisions again. So that's, that's how important this work is in your book. Thank you, Kevin. You have been amazing. My dad would have liked you. I can only tell you how much, how humble that makes me because he, he, you know, I admire, I admire him for, and 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 thank him for i'm not sure i was while you were telling me that story elk i i was thinking to myself okay would i go lie in a ditch with a bunch of dead people or would i let them shoot me and i'm not sure what decision i would have made mm -hmm. um but he had the he had the the ability and the mm -hmm. and the courage to do that mm -hmm. yeah it's pretty, it's pretty awesome hard to get your head around it but it, it really is so thank you thank you so much for being here thank and, you uh, i and we're gonna have to keep in touch and you're gonna have to tell me yeah. how the book's doing and and yeah. if you want if you'd like to come back and talk about your 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 practice and and mm -hmm. being a counselor and doing what you do i would love to have you back sounds great you're wonderful to talk to so i would i would like that very cool. Very nice. So if you'll wait right there, I have to do this and then I'll be right back. Okay. Hey, thanks hey. for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of PositiveTalkRadio.net. Please visit our website, oddly named PositiveTalkRadio.net, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to one another because each other's all we